The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we're starting a new series today, a series through the message of Acts. And really the best way to understand the book of Acts is to see it as a continuation of the gospel according to Luke. If the gospel according to Luke is an account of what Jesus began to do in Cheech while on earth, then the book of Acts is an account of what Jesus continues to do now as the resurrected Christ working through the Holy Spirit. You, if you look at your Bible, uh, you may see at the top of uh, the chapter of Acts, it says the Acts of the Apostles or just simply the book of Acts. It's more appropriately uh, could be titled the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. And what a great series to begin right after Easter. Jesus is alive, and now what? Imagine you are a disciple of Christ and you are listening to everything He is saying. You are watching everything that he does. It is clear that he is the one that God has chosen to save his people. And then he's killed. You're devastated. You, You feel hopeless. You feel maybe that you got it all wrong. And you are trusting in the wrong guy. And then three days later, he's alive. And he comes to you and presents himself to you. What are you thinking? You're thinking, it's all over. Paradise is here. And now the party starts. I think we feel that way too. Maybe you're asking that question like they did. When will the grieving end? When will you bring complete restoration? When will you save us from the brokenness of the world that we live in? And so we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come, come back and, and fix it all. And I think Jesus would respond in the same way that he responded to his disciples uh, many years ago, the way he would respond to us now. That when we live in this world and dwell in this world that is, that is broken and difficult, and we say, God, when are you going to make it all better? I think he would respond the same way, and he might say, try not to focus on the when, because you're not going to be able to know. But instead, try to focus on what I am doing now in you and through your circumstances, and try to see what I'm doing in the world and how I desire to use you and the church, not through your own character, your own power, your own ability, but try to, try to see what I'm doing through my power as I am transforming you to bring about my great plans for the world. And that's what he says to us. You see, the New Testament knows nothing about a, a follower of Jesus who is not participating with Jesus in his mission for the world. The New Testament knows nothing about someone who who knows spiritual things about God and what he has said, and yet does not join him in what he is doing in the world. The book of Acts is a little convicting. It will be a little convicting. My prayer is that it would be convicting for you. But it's also another thing. It is, it's exhilarating. It's exciting. It's energizing. And I pray that not only would we be convicted as we read passages together and dwell on its implications for our lives and for our families and our neighborhoods, but we would be excited. We'd be energized to do things that maybe we never thought possible on our own, to do things and and to sacrifice things and to engage in things that we never thought that we would ever do. Because that was maybe for other people. It was for outgoing people and extroverts and, and ministers and missionaries. But maybe we would be energized to participate with Jesus in what he continues to do and say 
and how he's working in our world. And so where do we start? Where do we start learning how to be a faithful witness? If you want to be a faithful witness, where should you start? Where do we start? Do we start with an evangelism class? You know, maybe we do a seven-week evangelism class. A community outreach event? Do we, uh, do, we, do we start with an international missions team and really beef up our, our outgoing mission funds? Do we start a food and clothing ministry for the poor? Do we begin just listening to Christian music at our cubicle in our office? All right? Is that what it means to be a faithful witness? Do we start a Bible study with our coworkers? I mean, these are all wonderful things, but that's not where we're going to start. Maybe those are the implications for what it looks like for you and for us as a church. But really, when we're asking, where do we start being a faithful witness? Jesus is alive. We just celebrated Easter. Where do we start? How do we live as faithful witnesses? What does it mean to be a faithful witness? Well, let's start where Jesus starts. That's always safe. Let's start where Jesus starts. Before his disciples do a single thing, he prepares them for the mission ahead. He prepares them to understand what it means to be a disciple and to be a part of his mission and what it will require of them to be faithful and faithful witnesses in their lives. And so we need to be prepared as well. And that's what today is going to be about. We're going to learn about this this preparation and we're going to talk a little bit about, about what it means to be a part of this story that he brings us into. And hopefully it'll launch us uh, well prepare us and launch us into the series ahead. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to, not Acts, <laughs> but actually the Gospel of Luke at the very end. Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to start today. And then I'm going to read a few verses in Luke 24, and then I'm going to jump over to Acts chapter 1. Because you see the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts 1 are really, they're, they're almost... Uh, redundant. They kind of say the same things, and, and Acts picks up where, where, where it was left off in, in Luke. And so it's, think of it as like a, a, a two-part book, Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. In the context of this, Jesus has just risen from the grave. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. To these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of thy father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and ble- he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now let's just go over to Acts chapter one and read the start of Acts. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
Luke says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There comes a point, and there must come a point for these disciples who are following Jesus and learning from him and seeing all that he does, a point from changing from being passive participants and followers of Jesus to being active witnesses of everything that they have been a part of. And this transition is quite dramatic for them. They've been following Jesus. When, when questions are asked, Jesus is their spokesman. He, Jesus speaks. He's the one out front. He's the one that takes the burden of representing them. And there must come a point when they are now the ones taking what they have learned and doing what Jesus did and proclaiming the good news and being a faithful witness. And going from enjoying Jesus, like us, and going from enjoying Jesus on one hand to, uh, to being a faithful witness of him is quite a big shift. And so consider for a moment, uh, what was it that made these disciples say yes to this? What was it that made them give their lives for it? What would be so compelling and so exciting for them to say, okay, we're going to go do that, and run into the streets and begin being faithful witnesses to the point of, of sacrificing their very lives. Every single one of Jesus' uh, early disciples, the apostles, would die at, as martyrs with one exception of John. He would die as an old, at an old age of natural causes, and everyone else would be martyred. What would cause them to be, what, what would enable them to be so excited to do that? You know, if you're considering your answer, I want to tell you, here's the top answer that I hear a lot of people say of why we should be a faithful witness. Because Jesus told us to. I mean, that's a good answer, right? I mean, it's an easy answer. Jesus told us to. I mean, you're just doing what, after all, it's not a bad reason to do something. Jesus commands you to do it. Jesus' followers were to make disciples as a matter of obedience. And that's actually true. We see this through the Gospels in Matthew and, and even in Luke, where Jesus' parting words to his followers were, go and make disciples and be my witnesses. Was there something else, though, that compelled them so strongly to be his witness? And what should compel us to do the same? I think it had a lot to do with what we see in this passage. Before Jesus tells them what to do, he wants these first believers and all future believers to know exactly what story that they are a part of. At his first appearance to his disciples after his resurrection, Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's really me. Look at my hands and my feet. And then he says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him broiled fish, right? And then he says this in verse 44. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
Luke 24 describes the first day in the life of the risen Lord. He just defeated death and sin. He just was risen from the grave. And how does he spend his day? Literally, how does he spend his day? He spends his entire day meeting with his early disciples and giving them a history lesson of the Old Testament. He spends his entire day showing them how everything spoken and written in the Old Testament was about him. The Gospel of Luke is the account of all that Jesus did and said, and the, God, and the, and the book of Acts is all about what his disciples did next in response to everything they learned. Jesus said, go, so they went. And the book of Acts tells us what happened. And we see all over the book of Acts, we see people asking questions. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you telling us about Jesus? Why are you giving your life for these things? And do you know what? Not a single person said, because Jesus told us to. Not a single person said, hey, we're just following the boss's orders. Honestly, I don't know why we're doing this. Isn't it the right thing you're supposed to do? We're part of this church now. We're part of it, and it's, you know what? He died for us. It's the least we could do. Have you ever felt that way? Why would you be compelled to be a faithful witness, to proclaim the gospel, to be hospitable, to pursue non-Christians, to share your faith, even at the expense of losing your job, relationships, privilege, comfort? What would, not a single person said, we're just doing what he told us to do. What did they say? Well, we see in Acts what they said. We're going to learn more and more about what they said and why they said it. We see in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins his answer like this. He says, let me tell you what happened 600 years ago. When the prophet Joel said that this was actually going to happen, that he would fill his people with his presence, and this is what we would do. Another time, Peter is put on trial before the high priest, and they ask him directly, why are you teaching about Jesus? Why are you telling these stories? And he gives them a history lesson about, uh, about King David and how King David said that one day God's Messiah would bring salvation and that he would be like a stone that is rejected. But once this stone is rejected, this stone would actually be the cornerstone in God's house. And you rejected that stone and now that stone is in charge and he's alive and his name is Jesus. Paul and Bartimaeus are in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, which we'll study. And they go into the synagogue, which Paul would do. Every time he came into a new place, he would go to the religious center. And he's there, and the, re the rulers look at Paul and say, do you want to add anything to what we're saying as they're reading from the Old Testament? He stands up, and he says, for 450 years, God's people were enslaved in Egypt, but God saved them, dot, 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 Jesus is alive, he's our salvation. And then there's another time, and, and this is my favorite, with Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, he's brought before the religious leaders, right? He's one of the deacons, and they ask him, why are you doing this? Are you loving people this way? Why are you teaching about Jesus? Why are you saying the reason you're doing this is because of Jesus? Why are you doing that? And this is what he says, and I want to quote him exactly because I think it's really important. He says this, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out from there and lived in Haran. How many of you have begun your Christian testimony with a geography lesson about Abraham moving from Mesopotamia to Haran? Anybody? No. He begins with a geography lesson. He says, let me tell you what happened and what God did and how he took this man and he sent him out from where he was into an unknown place. And then they killed him. Then they killed Stephen. Because he is saying everything that God has told us, everything that God has shown us, everything that God has done in the history of the world is all about Jesus. And so when he's telling them a geography lesson and a history lesson about how God has worked in the past, he is connecting the dots and saying everything he is doing now rests on everything God has done already. Stephen is about to be killed, and when they say, why, don't you think the easiest thing that Stephen could have done is, you guys, Jesus just told me to do this. That would have been a great out, and they were like, okay, well, we'll stop. Stop doing that and go away, but he doesn't. It would have been the easiest thing to say. He doesn't. He gives them a history lesson. And don't miss this. The motivation for us to live as faithful witnesses and and testimony, a living testimony to the grace of God does not begin with our own conversion. It does not begin with our own story. It does not begin with the first time you met Jesus yourself. Jesus opened up the scriptures for them so that they could rightly understand what they were to do in that point forward. If we want to make sense of what you are to do in the future as Jesus' disciples, you must make sense of what past story God has invited you into. Jesus suffered and died. He was buried and he rose because these actions were governed by the plan of God, the mission of God to establish his plan well before the manger story. Jesus suffered and died and he was buried and he rose because in Genesis 3, God said to Adam and Eve, one day I'm going to fix all of this mess and I'm going to make it better. And it will come at great expense to myself. Jesus Jesus died, he suffered and died and rose because God said, I am on a mission to save my people to turn them from their sin, to give them forgiveness, and to bring them back to me. And he's still doing that. And he invited his disciples and his followers into that very thing, to be a part of that mission. And in fact, it's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says in Luke 24, after he reminds them of that story, he says, okay, you will be my witnesses of these things. And so they say, okay, got it. We're going to be the witnesses of you living and dying and raising from the grave. And he says, no, no, no. You're going to be my witnesses to it all. All of it. You're going to be my witnesses to the whole plan, the whole story. And your life fits into that story. And your suffering fits into that story. And your joys fits into that story. The grace that you received fits into that story. Your neighbor fits into that story. And God is not done showing us how wonderful that story is, and the ends of that story. The great story that tells the whole story of the universe, the story that says God created all that there is, and it's very good. But man rebelled against God and made a mess of it, and God would have been perfectly just in leaving mankind in their own sinful state, but instead he makes a promise. 
And that promise was that even though man made a mess of it, God's promised Messiah would come one day to restore what was broken between God and man, what was broken between mankind and mankind, what was broken between mankind and creation. I spent this weekend with one of our deacons beating the ground into submission as we pulled weeds and trimmed back hedges. And all the while, I'm cursing Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> one day, see, even my, my enmity with creation tells the story of my need for salvation and our creation's need for redemption. And it's not the end of the story that God promises a Savior and He came and He died and He rose from the grave. Once this good news comes, God Himself takes dwelling, not in a building, but in a people, in the hearts of His people. And they would spread the good news to the captives and the gospel will be like a, a seed that is planted and it grows and it flourishes and it spreads until one day when the King of Kings returns and restores all of creation in the new and forever kingdom where there is sin no more. We wait for that. I long for that. I know you do too. We need to know what story we're a part of. Jesus' followers determined at all costs to spread the good news about Jesus, to be faithful witnesses because they understood clearly the dynamic thrust of the Bible's own story. And they realized they were not just a part of a relationship with Jesus and a friendship with Him. They were a part of God's eternal and perfect and gracious and merciful plan to redeem the world. And they said, let's give our lives to this. Let's go, as He said, and let's testify to the grace of God that we've received. It wasn't a second thought. It wasn't a hesitation. It was a joyful pursuit of God's certain and forever kingdom that had come and that would be complete. And they longed to see that day. If you're a Christian, you're a part of that story. A church or a Christian who is merely a passive participant in the blessings of God or who has isolated the ministry of, of being a faithful witness of the grace of God to, to staff of the church or missionaries in foreign countries, you have lost the plot of the Bible and you have forgotten the very reason you exist. I told you the book of Acts would be convicting. And if we, man, if we just merely participate and by proximity are enjoying the blessings of being a Christian and yet fail to participate in what God's doing in the world through us, we have forgotten the very meaning of our lives. The book of Acts is Jesus' invitation then for every Christian to remember the, the reason for his or her existence. Why are you here? To testify to the grace of God. And that's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. He says, this is my goal. This is my aim. This is my purpose in life. To testify to the grace of God. And when he says, I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. And now I look forward to taking hold of that, that, that very thing that has been promised to me. But what does it mean to finish the race? What does it mean to fight the good fight? Does it... Well, he is talking about 
everything that we can see in the book of Acts. He has fought that fight of, of battling against his own self, his own flesh, that wishes to, to pursue, first and foremost, his own comfort, his own agenda, his own glory, rather than participating in the mission of God for the world. He's finished the race, the race of endurance that is continually laboring, a joyful labor of, of, of telling the truth, proclaiming the good news, telling people about Jesus, inviting them to repent from sins and find forgiveness. When everything in culture says, you don't need that. Find it somewhere else. Find it in yourself. And we'll even see times in Paul's life, this hero, right, where he was wanting to give it all up where he at times even said and felt, it's not worth it. It's too hard. Jesus doesn't give us a commandment to be a witness without giving us a pattern to follow. He doesn't just say go and now go and do it and say, okay, we'll just run out and start telling people. This sermon is really a part of preparing us. It's part of preparation. Before he sends his disciples out, he prepares them. And not only should every Christian be a faithful witness, every Christian can be a faithful witness by the model and example and power that God has given to us and the words that he has instructed to us. Not only should we, but we can be. And, and, and the opportunities that are before you and I are, are, you'll probably find that they are much more, they're much easier than you think it might be. They're much more accessible than you think it might be. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. It is difficult. But they're readily available, opportunities for us. Jesus brings his disciples to an intense, as Luke tells us, an intense 40-day training. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't know that. Jesus rose from the grave, and then he spent 40 days with them. You know, sometimes when we read the accounts, it sounds like he rose from the grave and then just like ascended into heaven. He actually, he spent 40 days with them. He spent, I mean, an entire, like, seminary, like, class teaching them. This is what it's all about, and here's what we're going to do. And then he rose. And he reminds them of essential features of living as faithful witnesses. And I'm going to close with three final and quick essential features of living as faithful witnesses. And I'm going to turn them just into prayers for us in this series, Prayers for Us as a church, and in our individual lives. Here's the first feature. My prayer is that we would move towards others as God has moved towards us. Jesus says to them in Luke 24, he says, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is a really amazing verse, and don't overlook it. Jesus is saying, these are the words I spoke to you while I was with you. And it might say, well, what do you mean while he was with them? He's with them right now. Jesus is saying something different. He's saying, while I was with you and lived with you and, and walked with you and had communion with you in everyday relationship, remember the things I told you when we had life together. You see, Jesus is the incarnation of God. He is God in the flesh. He, he lived an incarnational life with them. What does incarnation mean? I like to think of it like in carne asada, right? So in carne asada, in, in the meat, right? In the meat, that's what he's saying. He's like, when I was in the meat with you, in the flesh with you, dwelling with you, you won't be able to see it any other way. Again, the incarnation, and now your mouth is watering. Good. If I can get your mouth to water to thinking about being a missionary in your community, good. 
What does it mean to be incarnational? To help us remember, he shows us, I was with you. He communicates, the incarnation of Jesus communicates more than just a miracle of Jesus. So when we say, wow, God became man, what a miracle, and that is a miracle. It communicates something so much more. It communicates the compassion of God to be with his people. His compassion for his people, his desire to be with his people, his joy in pursuing his people and initiating with them and coming towards us when we were running in the opposite direction. The fact that God became a man means that God is running towards us when we are running in the opposite direction. A faithful witness of the grace of God moves towards others in the same way that God has moved towards us. Oftentimes our enemies, oftentimes people with whom we have very few similarities, oftentimes people that we are very different from in all kinds of ways. Not all people are called to take the gospel from where they are into far places of the world, but we are all called to leave the comfortable routines of our lives and move towards others the same way God has moved towards us. If we are not moving towards people that are different, if we are not moving towards others that are uncomfortable, we're not being like Jesus. He moved towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were rebelling, when we were different, when we were ignoring, when we were hating him, at that time, the Bible says that was the perfect time for God to send his son when we were at our worst. If you want to be a faithful witness, consider who's already, who's already in your life that you can move towards. Who is just in that close proximity in your life? Who is in that Jerusalem? As Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, you're going to be my witnesses right where you're planted where you live and work and play and, and go to school? Are there people that you need to move towards that you're resisting? He's calling you to be a faithful, gracious witness. Is there a coworker, a neighbor, a family member who needs to hear that there's good news for the captive, that there is freedom for the oppressed, that there's peace for the weary? The message of the gospel is that God moved towards us while we were running in the opposite direction. So you cannot be a faithful witness without being on the move. A Christian is one who's on the move. The message of Acts is a message of God's people on the move. And they're being propelled forward and outward by the power of God working in their lives. And that's what happens as the grace of God is continually applied in our life. And as we remember the gospel story that he loves us and died for us, it will have a natural propelling effect in our life. We'll move towards others, often times with people that are very different. On the move to the outskirts of community in which you live and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So it is my prayer that we would be a church that's on the move. It's my prayer that through this series and beyond, you would be compelled, convicted in your areas of stationary life where you're like you know I like I like what I'm doing right now I got everything where I want it to be I want this to disrupt you not because I hate you <laughs> it's because I love you and it's easy to be people that are immovable 
And we need to repent of those sins where we see ourselves immovable. We need to repent of those sins where we see ourselves uh, not moving towards others that are different from us, not preaching peace and reconciliation and grace and mercy. We need to ask forgiveness when we consider our own comforts rather than thinking of the other person. Here's another prayer. That we would have the courage to proclaim the gospel even at great cost to ourselves. Jesus says in verse 45, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. How many of you, you know, coming into this introduction, knowing that we're preaching through Acts, you come into the series and say, Hey, I'm, I love this. I'm totally on board with being a faithful witness. If only I had a little more time in my day. I'm totally on board with Christians being disciple makers and moving out of their stagnant and stationary life and actually being courageous with the gospel. Things are just so busy right now. How many of you are willing to affirm these things, but, you don't, but you can't, you're not willing to lose anything? It, it, yes, it is true. If you embrace and affirm your place in God's story to take the gospel into all areas of your life, it will come at a great cost. There is no way around it. If you are unwilling to sacrifice, you're unwilling to follow Jesus. You're unwilling to move. You're unwilling to know him, trust him, and obey him. You'll lose money. You'll lose friends. You'll lose time. You'll lose patience even. You might lose your job. You might lose influence and power. The cross of Jesus represents the culmination of Jesus' surrender to the will of God for the redemption of his people. It's, it, it, it reflects the culmination of, of what it means to be a God on the move and to be courageously moving and speaking into people's lives, even at great cost. What is at the heart of the gospel but the cross? What is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian but the cross? The cross is where Jesus gave himself for sinners sacrificed himself. He substituted himself. It is at the cross where Jesus says, I'm going to take your sin and you're going to take my life. The cross is the only means for forgiveness and favor before God. And the message of the cross, what is the message of the cross if it is not self-giving love? Jesus would suffer and die and rise from the dead so that our sins would be forgiven. And this is the message that is proclaimed should be proclaimed by every Christian, that Jesus gave himself. It is true that Jesus lives today and he's enthroned in glory, and we live now as ones who should celebrate the life of Christ, but you should know that Jesus did not survive his execution. It's easy to think he's alive, and so the Christian life is one of triumph, peace, prosperity, life eternal, and it is. But you need to know that he did not survive his execution. He gave it all. And then he tells us, pick up your cross and follow me. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that he says that. Pick up your cross and follow me. He calls us to put to death any notion that our life belongs to ourselves. He calls us to put to death the notion that, that, that our time is ours, that our skills are ours. He calls us to put to death the notion that we are... That, that everything that we have in our life is for our own choosing and our own enjoyment. 
He says, put to death that idea that you belong on this earth for yourself. You belong on this earth for my purposes. And those purposes are good. And then he says, you're a steward of those things. Steward your skill. Steward your time. Steward your home, your resources, your assets. Steward everything that I've given to you, every blessing of God, you're a steward of. The way we steward God's blessing is to imitate his self-giving love. To have courage to imitate that. Even at great cost to ourselves. If we're to look at the heart of Christianity, we would see a God who gave himself away for the redemption of his beloved children. And then Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. If our view of following Jesus is enjoying his pleasure in this life and the blessings of his life without causing drastic inconveniences to us, you might be following somebody else and not Jesus. You might be following the call of some other Lord and uh, and, uh, some other pseudo-savior, but it's not what Jesus calls us to. When Jesus sent his disciples out to make disciples, as he sends us out to do the same, he warned them that suffering and sacrifice would be embedded in their mission. And in fact, we think sometimes the better Christian you are, the better life and comfort you will receive. But we see in Scripture, the opposite's actually true. The better Christian you are, it's almost as the quicker opposition you receive, the quicker you, you find yourself in discomfort. If you were a really good Christian, you didn't survive three years. <laughs> The mission of Jesus is concern for others. And throughout the Bible, we see God's persistent concern for the stranger, consistent concern for the outsider, consistent concern for the marginalized, the sojourner, the needy, the poor. We see this consistent concern for others. And any time we have, and any time we take upon this mission of being concerned for others, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost our church. Anytime we say, Jesus, I'm going to take upon myself the mission that you took upon, which is a concern for others, you say, get ready, it's going to be hard. And you're going to receive opposition, and people are going to be confused by what you're doing. Anytime you desire to make a stranger a friend, it's going to cost you. So it is my prayer that we would be a church that is generous. And I don't mean just generous with our money. I think that's part of it, for sure. But I'm talking about generous with our love as people who obey the second commandment, to love our neighbor, to love the poor, to love the marginalized, to love the broken and weary, to love people that have less than us, even if it costs us our influence, our position, our power, our resources, our reputation. And in that way, we are being like Christ at great cost, loving others. Let me give you one more prayer. My prayer is that we would hope in the resurrection. Jesus says in verse 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The fulfillment of God's plan for the life of mission of the church relies on one incomparable resource. And you know who it is? Not you. (laughs) It's not me. 
It's not any committee or board or mission enterprise. It is the power of God, the power of his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we live, therefore, as people who know the suffering, that suffering has an expiration date. We live as people then who hope in the power of God to renew and restore and redeem. So we live as people that as we encounter suffering, encounter discomfort, even the discomfort of being convicted in, this passage, in these passages over the next several weeks, we live as people who, who know that it has an end. We live, therefore, as people who do not put their trust in, in material or economic or political gain, but in the final victory of Jesus over all evil. We live as people who strive in all things to turn from doubt and grief and uncertainty to hope and confidence and rest in all that Jesus has said and done and, and continues to do. The cause of Christ is the only cause in the Christ or cause in the world that has a future. Let me say it again, the cause of Christ and what he is doing in his kingdom is the only cause that has a future. It's the only cause worth giving your life for. Jesus says, don't go out and do ministry until this power comes upon you. And here's the point of this passage, it's pretty clear. And what matters ultimately to, to Jesus in being faithful witnesses is a life that is lived out of deep and surrendered connection to him. So much so that Jesus would say, if you're not doing ministry on my power, if you're not being a faithful witness and trusting in me at the same time, please don't go out. Don't tell people about me. <laughs> don't tell people you belong to me. Unless, unless you are trusting in me and find your strength in me and the power of my words, you're not ready to do it. And so we should be spending so much time with Jesus that when we have the opportunity to be with people face to face, it is just merely an overflow of our love for Jesus. Our words that we speak, the compassion in which we speak them, the love that we give is really just Jesus working through us because we have spent so much time with him. As Moses spent so much time with God on the mountain when he received the word of God from him, he came down and said his, his face shine like a hot amber because he had spent time in the presence of God. We should be spending so much time with Jesus that as we go into our life and our neighborhood and our workplaces and even in the midst of our own family and friends, that we would glow as if we were people that have been spending time with Jesus for a long time. Jesus says, you need to be prepared. You need to wait. Being a faithful witness is not about our gifting. It's not about our competency. It is not about our ability to do great things, but it is about our deep and surrendered communion with Jesus. My prayer is that as we seek to do, uh, to be faithful to what God has called us to do in our world, in whatever, whatever implications that leads us to through the course of this time, that we would do it because we love Jesus and we love others, not because we want to feel good about ourselves, not because we want to be special, not because we want our church to grow and it looks better that way, but we would do it because we have spent so much time in the love of Christ that we cannot help but give that love to others. The passage ends with the disciples being blessed by Jesus, Jesus being carried up into heaven, and the disciples returning to Jerusalem and praising him. They were excited. What compelled the disciples to be faithful witnesses? It was because they saw themselves as part of the story of God and God's story to bring about the full redemption of the world through the work that he was going to do through them.
through the church. It's an exciting time right now. It's an exciting time for the, for the life of Holy Cross. It's an exciting time for the Christian church abroad. It's an exciting time for our culture because God is working, He is moving, and he is, he is calling the church to be on the move. I hope that you will move with us. I hope that you will open your hearts and your eyes and your, your ears to hear and see what he is doing and that you would join him in this mission. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the mission that you've called us to. Thank you first and foremost for your steadfast love and grace and mercy to us. We pray that through your your spirit, the power of your spirit, you would uh, enable each and every single one of us to be on the move, that we would not be stubborn in our ways, that we would not give excuses for why we are not joining you, but that we would be compelled by your, your grace, that we would joyfully move, that we'd be joyfully moved from the place where we are and outward into the lives of others. Just as you have pursued us, we thank you, Jesus, for your continued love and ask for your courage. We ask for your presence. We ask for your kindness to us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We now participate in this brief meal together called the Lord's Supper. This is a way we come together every week and we are reminded of this story. And the reason for why we do everything that we do and that is because God has initiated with us that he has pursued us, the stranger, and made us his friend. He has come to us, the orphan, and made us his children. He has come to us, his enemy, and he calls us his beloved. It's all because he stood in our place and took our sin so that we would have his righteousness. We need to remember that every single time we come together because then we go out as God's people armed with the, this good news and loving others. On the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sin. Take it and drink. And so we eat and drink together to remember that we exist and have our being and have our life and have our forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us and we don't want to neglect it. Because to neglect that, to neglect the gospel, is to neglect the very life that we desire and the very salvation that we hope in. And so we take this and we remember what he's done, but we also do it to be empowered by the life of Christ that is continuing to live in us, to be, to be encouraged, to be strengthened by the life of Jesus that continues to do his work in our lives. And so in this meal, we are spiritually nourished as we take of it by faith. And I encourage you to take this meal by faith Know that as you take it in faith, you're being strengthened in your inner being. Christ is dwelling in your heart richly, as we learn in his scripture, because we trust in him. He fills our heart, and we go and we have something to give others. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take this meal. Because to take this meal is actually a symbol of your taking of Christ and trusting in him. But instead... I encourage you to see this good news. That your forgiveness is not based on any character of your own. It's not based on your own endurance. It's not based on your record, good or bad. In fact, it is in spite of all that. It is an objection to all that. The grace of God is opposed to earning. It is a gift. 
And I hope that you would trust in Jesus, acknowledge your need for him, and see that he gave it all so that you would know him. We'll serve everyone, and then we'll eat and drink after everyone's been served. Let's do that now.
know, when the Bible talks about bread, uh, it's talking oftentimes much more than just uh, a meal. To 